This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Joining us is the co-founder and medical director of Goodstock. She's also an anesthesiologist, an author, an inventor, and community activist. Let me welcome Dr. Ebony Hilton. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'm going to tell everyone, you are literally in the middle of your, you're in your your space. You got a patient that's under, (laughs) so you may have to run out. And if you got to run out, that is perfectly fine because you're on your job. And because you didn't expect, you know, folk to, to not be there today. So you got to handle because it's your business, right? Right. I tell people all the time, we're human too. And we get, unfortunately, some of us get sick. And so we have a few people that's in and out of the hospital right now, unfortunately. What state are you in? In Virginia. Okay. How, how are the COVID rates and this Delta thing? Like, I, I hate watching the news or reading newspapers. I like to talk to people who are literally in the belly of the beast. Right. I mean, in Virginia, we actually did a pretty good job um, of, and I think that goes for most of the blue states, right? The democratic states, um, the vaccine rollout tried to be as efficient as possible. But that being said, right now, COVID cases are increasing in every single state in the United States of America. And today, I think it was 198% increase over the last two weeks, basically since the 4th of July. We've increased you, our uh, our cases by are 190 Are you nervous? about that when you hear that (laughs) yes to be honest with you there you'll see people on twitter um other doctors talking about the fact they they have gotten infected with covid despite being um vaccinated um like i said i have some co-workers unfortunately um you know friends in the hospital that have contracted covid19 um after vaccination just because we work so closely with covid patients right um so yeah it's one of those things i think about every day uh, why which why i have lines on my face right now for my mask because i do not take my mask off in this hospital um but yeah it is what, what it is what's been the toughest um thing over the last year and a half for you dr Hilton? yeah I, I think the toughest thing um is thinking about you know the patients that are literally younger than me um that have unfortunately lost their lives and you know there was one time I want to say this was back in like April or May where I was literally getting ready for work and just had a full blown, just crying fest in the shower thinking I need to write my will and Testament. I need to call my family um, and just let them know what I would want because it was, it was just that kind of um, peak season when there were cases coming in left and right. We didn't have a vaccine in sight, no cures, no, um, no, real hard fast um proven treatment options even for persons with COVID. And so yeah, that it was a real realization of get your get your house in order. And and I did. I, you know, wrote up my will. I called up my folks and said this is where, you know, um the legal paperwork is being kept. And yeah, this is what you do. Uh there was a doctor on social media today and she was saying that, you know, there's a spike in her state. I think she's in Texas. And mm-hmm. she said, you know, as people are dying, they're like, can you give me the vaccine now? Yeah. And she was like, I have just have to hold their hands and, and tell them that it's too late and tell their right. family members. And hopefully their death will, you know, spark some sort of change. 
Have you experienced that at all? I mean, you experience the full gamut, right, um, of people who still deny that COVID is even real um, or that it's, it's much to be um, kind of spoken about outside of the flu. Um, for me, most of my patients, I, I cover the ICU. So I'm an anesthesiologist. I cover 30% of the, my time I cover the ICU and 70% of the time I'm covering the operating rooms. Um, and so in the ICU, unfortunately, people can no longer talk. Um, when they get to my ICU in particular, these are persons that have now out of the acute phase of COVID and they are in the, I'm chronically now dealing with um, COVID. So they are waiting long transplants or they are waiting um, you know, for their lungs to get stronger and they're on a ventilator for, for months. Um, and I do mean months. Um, and so, they can't tell me, right? They can't say, can you give me a vaccine at this point? Um, we are literally just trying to use machines to keep their organs working until either um, that acute phase of, if they get a, an additional infection on top of it, if they get a, a pneumonia from a bacterial source or they get septic, that we can, we can try to, you know, walk them along until their body can recover if they're young enough. Um, or until they can get a, a transplant. I think one of the um, worst things about COVID-19, and I don't even want to say this out loud, but the, so Ebola, Ebola, mm -hmm. people catch that. You're bleeding out of every orifice. It's horrific. Right. It Visually, it's horrific. COVID feels like the flu or a bad cold for people who've had it. I only lost my sense of taste. You know, mm -hmm. I'm good. And then you have the extreme cases uh, like the Broadway actor who lost his limbs and blood clots. And then you have the long haulers who are experiencing that. But we're only really talking about a small percentage of people. So it's not enough because the vast majority of people recover. So they feel like it's not that bad. And then the vast majority of people are also carriers who may never get a symptom, right? So how do we navigate this space? With, yes, Dr. Hilton. Yes. Right, right. What I have to tell those people is, so there's a report released by the Fair Health. Um, this was this was a couple um, days ago. It was of 2 million people. And what they were, they looked at per persons who had private insurance and they collected all these data, um, data points from these people. So 2 million people who had COVID. And what they found was that of those persons, 23% um, of them, still had symptoms of COVID for at least 30 days after they were found to be positive for COVID, right? So long COVID. Now, of those persons who had long COVID, um, they were looking to see, is it only the people who are really sick and need to be hospitalized? So the persons who need to be hospitalized, 50% of those ended up having long COVID, right? Um, but then they looked at the people who were symptomatic but didn't require the hospital, right? Um, and what they found was that 27% of those were actually um, with long COVID symptoms, right? Then they looked at people who didn't have any signs and symptoms of COVID. They didn't have a cough, they didn't have a fever. They literally were one of those persons that went to go get COVID testing because there was COVID testing being offered. And what they found was that 19% of them in those 30 days had some type of experiences of, of either um, GI upset, they had changes to their lab work, like um, hypercholesterol. So basically their cholesterol levels were up, other inflammatory processes were up. If you look at, um, the, at University of Pennsylvania, 
um, I want to say it was their athletic department where they they had athletes who were asymptomatic or very, very mild symptoms of COVID. But when they scanned their chest, they showed that they had inflammation around their heart, right? Um, and that was about 15 to 30% of their athletes. The same thing was happening in, um, with, if you look at the, the incoming freshman quarterback for Georgia State, 18 years old, he also had mild COVID, but could not start the season because of inflammation around his heart. Boston Red Sox pitcher, I think his name was Eduardo Rodriguez. He had to sit out the season because of inflammation around his heart. And there's a study right now out of Stanford where they were looking at COVID patients who, who died from COVID complications, but they didn't necessarily present with any neurologic symptoms. They didn't, they didn't present with saying, I lost my taste and smell. But when they did autopsies on their body, their brain structure resembled that of persons with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So I say this to people to say, you may not have, you know, the, the outward, I am coughing, I can't breathe. Um, you may not have that, but the inflammatory process that happens within your body, you can still have impact on how your organs function. So, um, so yeah, there's studies out of Australia where they had, they um, were doing um, investigations on mice to see what happens with these mice if they have COVID. And when they allowed the, the mice to die, when they did autopsy, they didn't find the virus in the lungs, but they found it in the brain. And it's really interesting because again, you know, we have people that complain not only of loss of taste and smell, but also loss of hearing. So we know there's a tendency for the, the virus to infect your neurons, your, your brain cells. And if that doesn't scare people to say, when they say, oh, all I lost was my taste and smell, it's like, it infected your brain. And I, I at least have a machine that if your heart stops working, I can give you somebody else's heart. Your lungs stop working, I can transplant your lungs, I can transplant your kidneys, we can put you on dialysis, we can put you on a ventilator. I have nothing for your brain. So if your brain is infected, if your brain gets scarred, there's nothing I can do. So you don't want, no one should want this or no one should, because, you know, it's like this herd immunity thing. I was like, herd this. I don't want to be in a herd. I don't want to be around y'all. Um, yeah. You know, talk a little bit because, you know, this is a novel, it's new. It's new, even though it's part SARS, there's been other iterations. Now we got Delta, we got, you know, some other variants. What is it? What is this thing? What is this virus? Right. So literally coronavirus, you can think of us like the name Jones. We know there's many families named Jones, right? Um, and there's many coronaviruses, literally thousands, but there's only six of them that are known to have human to human transmission. And only two of them, unfortunately, that are known to be deadly to humans, that being MERS, which is the Middle Eastern um, Respiratory, and then SARS that we know now as, as COVID. Um, yeah. And it, it is one of those things where it's viruses always evolve. That's why they've been able to stay around. They're smarter than, um, than us in that they figure out different ways to evade our immune system. Um, we're seeing the same thing here with, with the Delta um, variant and also with the, the UK variant, um, or UK, the South African variant was the same way. It can evade the immune system, meaning that it can kind of trick our antibodies by slightly changing its, its shape, um, for lack of a better word. Um, yeah, and we, so which means that we just have to keep up with it. And the way we keep up with it is, for one, the scientists who came up with the mRNA vaccine is not a new thing. Literally, mRNA vaccines have been in the works for decades. Um, and we're using mRNA vaccines for cancer 
cancer treatments, which is a whole different arena. But the reason why it can be used is that we train your body to recognize a protein, meaning that if you have a breast cancer, for instance, if there's a protein, a receptor on that breast cancer cell, if I can give you this, this vaccine to say, hey, recognize this breast cancer cell and not make your entire body sick where people are losing their hair from chemotherapy or losing their kidney function because the chemotherapy agent kills all of the cells, then that's the best approach. And so that's what mRNA vaccines have been used for, um, for melanomas, for instance, um, to try to help with that. Now that we have this as an agent to use for with viruses, we can hopefully be able to look at the genetic sequence now of this Delta variant, create a vaccine specific for it, and now be able to target it a little bit more efficaciously. Um, but the problem is, is that the longer we go with people not being vaccinated, and the COVID, vac or COVID virus passes from one person to the next person to the next person, the more likely it is to mutate itself and become smarter. So we're gonna have to just make more and more different vaccines instead and of just- oh, And people don't right. even wanna take the first one. So they definitely, right. what, another one? Oh my right. goodness. So so Rona, I said Rona gonna be here for a while. I think she ain't never going. Uh, <sighs> we probably won't be here, but Rona and the roaches gonna be here. Uh, Dr. Dr. Ebony Hilton is here. Um, why'd you become a doctor and why anesthesiology? Cause that's the most, uh, heavily insured. I mean, you, you can't make a mistake. Right. I mean, it really is one of those things. So, um, when I was eight years old, my mom, my little sister asked my mom if she could have a brother and I'm the middle of three girls. And, um, and I came from a single parent home. And in that question, my mom started crying. And that was the first time I ever remember my mom crying at all. And um, she told us that my parents' first child was actually a little boy, that um, they were in high school, young, poor kids. And they went to a clinic and she had a test done on her. She doesn't know what the test was, but she felt a sharp pain and she started leaking fluid. And she went home, she's 17. She called the doctor and said, hey, I'm, my underwear are wet. Is this okay? And they said, yes, everything is fine. She went into labor two days later. And um, unfortunately, my brother only lived for three days and he passed away. And so at eight years old, my mom is telling us the, an abbreviated version of that story. But um, I made up in my mind right then that I wanted to do something so that moms wouldn't have to cry. And that literally was the only reason why I wanted to go into medicine. And so growing up in medicine, the thing that's frustrated me was that um, I realized that my child, as a, as a double board certified anesthesiologist, my child is three times more likely to die than a white woman with a third grade education. And, and there, there's systemic reasons as to why that's the case. Not to say there should be a two-tier system, but you would think if you, if you climbed up the educational ladder and you've taught yourself what signs and symptoms to look out for, if you now have money that my parents didn't have to be able to go to a, a doctor's office for prenatal care you you have all these resources and friends who are in every specialty why is my child more likely to die than this white woman's like i said with a, a third grade education um and that's what i've been trying to really tackle now more so than even practicing clinical medicine is addressing systemic racism and the necropolitics or policies that play into why black people get the short end of the stick in every sector of um, society that leads to worse outcomes for us. It's not that we're vulnerable, we're, we're targeted. 866-801-8255. You know, as you're, as you're talking about the disparate ways in which 
you know, and, and it's a shame. Healthcare should not, you know, I, I went to the doctors this week mm-hmm. and I was, for the first time in my life, I'm questioning, you know, this doctor, is he culturally responsive? You know, so I'm having a conversation with him that I've never really, you know, you, you trust doctors, right? You, you should, right? Or th- that's the way we've been trained, but I can't even trust that I'm going to get service. Cause I don't know if this person, and he may not even know how racist he is, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Or whether he cares about my life or what, uh, whether I'm valuable enough to, yeah. to give his best. So I'm, I'm asking him like, listen, a keloid, you know, what's your procedure for, you know, the, the incision and how are you going to deal with the scar? And, you know, mm-hmm. Oh, I pressure. I was like, okay, right answer. You know, like, but I'm going through this in a way that I haven't before. How should we g- talk to our doctors to find out if they right. have our best interests. How do we know? Right. I say for one, um, I tell my family, cause I don't come from a medical family that there is no such thing as a dumb question. If you have a question, ask it. And if they don't answer it in a way that you can understand, ask it again. Um, I, I hesitate a lot to say, to put the, um, honest on the shoulders of patients, because I don't know how to offer or fix a car. When I take my car to a mechanic, I'm expecting them to do what's best, right? I don't, I don't know what questions ask. So I put the responsibility on the physicians and on the medical system and say that we need to have some accountability tied to our outcomes. And that's one of the things where my, uh, I have a uh, consulting firm, Good Consulting. We literally wrote a memo asking for a, um, a federal department of equity of where you can have different metrics that are traced, just like we, we say we need this for the police officers and have some, some trackings of what are good police officers, what are bad ones. Same thing needs to be for in the medical field. We need to have something where we can literally look at what are the outcomes for each physician, a report card, if you will, that is public facing so that you, can t- you won't have to, to worry. You can literally look at this person's report card and see, are the outcomes for their black patients versus their white patients, mm. are they different? What is it, do they have higher complication rates? Do they have longer hospital stays? Do they have um, worse survey outcomes as far as um, patient satisfaction scores? All that type of stuff should be made readily available to you when you're walking into a clinic to say, is this someone I wanna turn my life over to? And then hold the hospitals responsible for who they are employing. If you're seeing you're getting bad outcomes from this person, why are you allowing them to still practice? I think I'm probably different than most people in the world when it comes to doctors that I don't just assume that they are gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that really came for me because I was hospitalized at 19 and um, told that I had to, you know, I had to sign three different pieces of paper and they said they'd only cut me if they had to remove my tubes. And I woke up in an OR and I'd been cut from hip to hip and nobody came to tell me what had been done to me for three days. Wow. Um, that, that's just the end of that story. It was a nightmare from then on. And I kind of said, I am never, ever going to go to a hospital, even when I die. I just want to die in my bed. So um, I will say that for me, I'm always challenging my doctor. I mean, I lived with a, a diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis for six years with 13 endocrinologists refusing to accept me as a client because they said, you are ignoring our advice, which is you could die. You need to have this surgery right now. And for me, it was like, well, that surgery 
the dangers you've told me of that surgery are, are things that could happen to me that I'll be wanting to die if that happens. So I'll risk just dying than having that surgery until I found a doctor who, you know, from the minute I sat down with him, he had something on his desk. It was like the, the, a, a 3D model of the inside of the throat. And right. it, it, my surgery was they had to operate in my throat. And I was like, well, what's that? He's like, oh, you know, some doctors, this is how I train doctors, because not every doctor can visualize the inside of the patient's body, you know, before they cut so that they're prepared for things. I'm like, you can do that? Okay, you, you, can, do, you can do my surgery. You can do my surgery. <laughs> but, you know, it was six years of talking to people. And I was like, no, you can cut three places to figure out what you got to do. No, no, I'm right. just dying before I let you do anything. <laughs> right. Right. And the fact that he actually took the time to talk to you. Now, I think that's a, that's a big thing in medicine. Um, you know, I love my coworkers. I love my colleagues. I love my, my field, but we miss out of a, a lot of um, socialization going through med school. I mean, you got to think our entire twenties are spent our entire from 18 to 22 was spent in college trying to get into med school from 22 to 26 was actually in med school. And then from 26 to 30, yeah, 30, 31 was um, residency training. My entire twenties was spent in a hospital where we were working upward 80 hours a week. Um, and so you don't get a lot of people interaction and how do you deal and, and, and talk to people and how do you actually develop, um, I don't know. Interpersonal, basic, yeah. Interpersonal basic, relationship basic, skills. Yeah. Right. And it, and it means a lot. It means a lot to sit there and, and instead of you standing with your white coat on looking down on someone, just sit down and saying, how are you? Like, who are you? You know, who is this in the room with you and, and getting to know a person. Um, but medicine can be very fast paced and very, um, how do you say it, um, sterile. And we need to get away from that because that's why we end up getting these disparities. But I absolutely hate that you went through that when you were 19 because I cannot imagine the PTSD that comes with that. Mm. So, yeah. Oh. I'm okay. I have four babies at home, home yeah. after that. But, uh -oh. you know, even a friend of mine, she had a diagnosis that um, the doctor kept saying, I kept saying to her, what's the prognosis for this thing they found? She's like, the doctor... The doctor said, I don't want to go there. And I said to her, that's not his job. His job. You need to, he needs to tell you what the, what the possibilities are. Mm -hmm. And I finally was so sick of this doctor. I had to go off on my friend and risk our friendship. It turned out she had fourth stage lung cancer. Jeez. And, you know, I was able to get her to a different doctor whose the treatment is working for her. But for months, he was like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I don't want to tell you what the possible things could be. I want to go there. It's my body. Yeah, somebody, somebody. Right, right. Doc, Dr. Ebony Hilton is here. I know you have to to go. I just anesthesiology is is a is a mystery. That's where you put people to sleep, right? But it, it's it's more than that. And and I was alluding to the how precise you have to be because right. if people don't wake up, that is your whole practice. And so you Ooh, own wow. your business. Talk about the business and starting a business like like the one you have. Right. Uh, I tell people all the time, my, my only job is to keep them alive. Because if you can think, if someone can go in, and cut open your brain and, um, and take out your heart and you don't die, that means that someone was on the other side of the drape, literally keeping 
your blood flowing to every single organ and everything, every single cell. And that's what made me want to go into anesthesia when I finally, um, you know, I didn't know what doctors, I thought doctors were like Dr. Quinn, medicine woman, because <laughs> I don't come from a medical family. So I thought doctors just did everything. So when I got into med school, it was like, oh, okay, I have to, I need to actually choose something. And, um, and initially I was going to go into OB because again, my little brother, but when I was on my OB rotation, I absolutely loved it. But I thought to myself, I don't want, I want to be able to work with men, women, young, old, um, the full spectrum and anesthesia because of the way we, we literally are kind of almost like the little ninjas. We're everywhere, but you never see us. We're, <laughs> um, I mean, we do things in psychiatry. We do things on OB, um, literally every surgery. And if, if they're in the hospital, if your heart stops or if you stop breathing, literally that overhead when you hear on Grey's Anatomy when they say code red or there's a code and everyone takes off running, the people that take off running are the anesthesiologists because we have to place your breathing device um, or your breathing tube. We have to, um, you know, conduct the code or, or run the CPR. Like that's what we're trained to do. But um, so that's what I do in the hospital. My consulting firm, what we do is literally we, we address uh, disparities and racial disparities and it's agnostic to industry we really try to tackle it in every single sector of um of society so we have clients that range from nonprofit organizations um we we, we work with, with churches for instance we work with um, um different foundations on upwards to corporations like um pfizer st jude um, um virginia department of health uh South Carolina hospital association and in doing so, what we're trying to do is say, we know that health, health does not happen in a hospital, um, meaning that, you know, healthy people don't come into hospital, sick people come into the hospital, which means that health must happen out into the community. And it's where you eat, work, sleep, uh, play and pray. So how do we then address the factors that lead black people to be sicker um, because of environmental racism, like Flint, Michigan, where we're allowing for water to be toxic, right? Or if we're looking at um, urban centers where we have this air pollution, like in Atlanta, where asthma rates are out of control because you're choosing to put these industries in our community. Or we can talk about, um, you know, hospital deserts, um, food deserts, pharmacy deserts, where they're literally, you're, you're twice as likely to not have a, a hospital in your community if you're black or brown compared to if you're white, you're four times more likely to not have a grocery store in your community if you're black versus if you're white. And what does that do to the development of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, if the only thing you put in my in my neighborhood is, is Hardee's, Taco Bell, Burger King, and McDonald's. Um, it's, a, it's a targeted thing that's done to our black and brown communities and making policymakers aware of it and saying these are the these are the statistics and the data that I'm getting out of the clinical sense of what I'm seeing in the hospital, and it's directly related to you. So how are we going to meet in the middle to fix this, so we can stop reporting the same disparities that our grandparents were facing for our grandchildren to come? So, and I want to jump in on one more thing that you know the hospitals, if you don't have money, the hospitals can charge you less, but they don't have to tell you that. And so a lot of us get caught up in paying these bills that the government would have paid those hospitals for. And then we get caught in a cycle of debt. We get sick again and then we can't, you know, so, you know, yeah, get the word out there. I also was concerned about this, the money that's going out for childcare. Who's letting the people who've never made enough money to file taxes 
know about, you know, that they are entitled to this money for these children they have, because it's not automatically coming to them if they've never earned enough to file taxes. Right, right. You all do that kind of work? Right. And, and we, we don't historically, but should we? Yes. And I, I'd really, I honestly say that we have about 13 um, subcontractors now that we've, we've hired out because we want to broaden our reach to say in every sense of the word. And it's not only, you know, about alerting them that the money is there. It's also how do we set up programs within our black and brown communities to say, let's do some not financial literacy because it's not like we're illiterate. It literally is just let us expose you to what you can do with these uh, with this money. Let us let us help um, you know to organize. Sorry, that's my no, you gotta go. You, <laughs> um, I'm okay. No, thanks. I'll be at the front door. All right. Um, All right. That's my part. You gotta go. You gotta part. go. No, it's my business partner. Okay. He's actually calling me to let me know that the case is done. But right. um, but no, but it, it is about you know how do we how do we not allow the government to just say, here's some money and, and we gave you money, now be happy. No, the money was entitled to us anyway. We're not even gonna get into reparations and the things that weren't given to us. We're not gonna talk about the fact that this wealth gap is gonna take another 250, 200, 